2: This episode is brought to you by the In Between podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
3: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family.
2: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's i m b e t w e e n . o r g.
3: Hey, at the end of our last episode, we announced a book giveaway for a book called in their own words it's testimonials from martin luther john calvin john knox and john bunyan we're really excited to give it away to a random listener you can find out all the details about this giveaway at the end of the show
0: this is
1: troy and Jill, and you're listening to revive thoughts It is step by step, it is inch by inch, it is stroke by stroke that our Christian character is built. Therefore, be content to do what God commands you to do.
3: Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. This sermon was preached through the 1860s and 1870s in New
0: York and it was preached by T. DeWitt Talmage. Talmadge. Uh, this is kind of an aside, maybe a weird way to start the episode, but London and New York in the late 1800s, they're just pff, the sweet spot of amazing happened. preachers. Yeah. I I, I, I feel like we're missing out. Um, anyway, London, maybe more so, but between both of them, I think you can find some of the best preachers that, I mean, ever lived. Yeah, definitely some greats. Okay, so Thomas DeWitt Talmadge, uh, who usually goes by T. DeWitt Talmadge, uh, is another one of those famous preachers from the late 1800s.
3: Yeah, we might pronounce it different ways throughout this Episode. I well, we'll see. Just, just know. I believe our official pronunciation is it Talmage," right? Dewitt
0: Talmadge. Do it. Do it. Talmage. His name is so difficult. <laughs> okay, go ahead. We read a lot of weird names on this show. We do. From and we have some weird ones coming up. I don't want to spoiler you, but there's one name that's coming up that is going to just. It's a weird, Balthazar Hubmeyer. That is a name, let me tell you. I love it.
3: Talmadge, uh, he was born in the year 1832 in New Jersey. His family came from a long line of the Reformed Church, with previous members of his family being the founders of East and Southampton. He attended the University of the City of New York, and he studied to be a lawyer. But during his studies, he changed gears and shifted and decided he wanted to go to ministry instead and ended up eventually graduating from the Reformed Dutch
0: Theological Seminary in 1856. His entire family pretty much went into the ministry, so if I wonder if that kind of had an effect on him not wanting to be a lawyer, of his brothers, four of the five would become ministers. One became this very famous missionary to China. Uh, Four of them received doctorates in theology or divinity. All of them would end up becoming uh, quite noted, but Thomas. And the missionary, John Van Ness Talmadge, uh, would become the, just world famous. He spent a few years in different pastor positions, but did not really begin to get attention until he joined up at the Philadelphia Reformed Church in 1862. And as this is the 1860s in North America, uh, he was also serving in, he, in the Civil War, and he was a chaplain during the Civil War. Uh, people thought he was too sensational and emotional. One line that I saw called him a pulpit clown, uh, yet soon the church outgrew the building that it was in and in 1869 the central presbyterian church of brooklyn eventually which would be eventually renamed brooklyn tabernacle recruited him and and that church by the way brooklyn tabernacle is still famous to this day they still are a very large church in new york
3: yeah talmage would end up having uh, three different wives over the course of his life and troy i feel like we see this i feel like we see (laughs) people going through different wives. and i'm curious my theory my hypothesis is that I mean, because you'd look at it at face value and you used to think women die a lot more than men. (laughs) That's true. But I think what's happening is we just have the men's lives documented better than the women's. Like, if we had these famous women that we were looking
0: at through history, we'd probably read that they went through three or four husbands during their life. I don't know. That's my theory. That's probably true. What I always am shocked by is the amount of speed with which they go through wives yeah remarry they remarry i um I, 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 a different time different culture i'm not gonna sure. judge per se but in, in my mind some of these guys it, not our gentleman uh talmadge but there was one guy and i can't remember who he was but it was like six months later he was married again i was like that was quick hey, man you, you
3: have your time to grieve and you'd, you'd and get you get back on again, the horse apparently. Yeah. <laughs> His first wife and him had two children. Um, she four, This is kind of tragic. She drowned in 1861. Two years later. So he, he gave it two years. Yeah, this was not, a, I think that's a more normal. Two years later, he remarried uh, and was with this wife for 32 years. So a nice long life with him. They had five kids together, but she uh, eventually would pass away as well. His last wife, which is kind of a little bit more scandalous. Um, he married three years after that. She was the widow of a wealthy man, and she was only 40 years old, which was 27 years younger than him at the time of their marriage. I guess, again, a different time, a different era. Sure. I don't know. There's a few things yeah. in that paragraph I, that I kind of raised my eyebrow at. I will bit. say,
0: I will say, at the very end of his life, he does kind of decline a little bit in popularity, and I have no reason to say this, and hopefully, I'm not spreading a rumor of any kind, but. A tiny part of me wondered, is it maybe because you married a woman that was almost 30 years younger than you? Uh, that could- I feel like that happened a lot. It happened.
3: It fit on the know. roof, right? I don't know.
0: All right. If you are an expert on ancient marriages from the eighteen hundreds, you can write in. Qualifies ancient. As ancient. You can write in and let us know. Was this a fair deal? Yes. What do you think? Uh, we'd be happy to hear that in the comments on yes. this one. Okay, I'll start. Talmudge was big about putting personality and passion into his sermons. He drew huge crowds, causing the church to have to move more than once to accommodate his large crowds. And speaking of moving, his church situation. I told it to my wife earlier today, and she just was like at what point do you just maybe think God doesn't want you to have a church? And I'm going to explain this to you. First, a fire overtook the church in 1872. They had just moved three years before that. During, this was during one of Brooklyn's worst fires. Okay, it's a bad fire. They built a new building in 1874, uh, but this one burns down 15 years later. Not good. 18 It's about 1889. <clears throat> they rebuild. We're going to get through this. 1894, a third fire burns it down. And this last one just deeply discourages Talmadge. He's a new location. They tried a completely different spot. Hopefully this one will be fireproof. And it burnt down too. After that, he just kind of announces his retirement and just, you know, I can't do any more of these moves and rebuilding. So I I don't know. I thought that was pretty rough for him. I I wouldn't like it either.
3: Yeah, his preaching was a big part of his draw. He was very... He had a bit of showmanship to him. Yes. You ever see that uh, that The Greatest Showman movie? Yeah. I got P.T. Burn and That's kind of how I think of
0: uh, <laughs> this guy. I mean, he's not running... I against... think you're telling by the look on my face. I wasn't the biggest fan on that one, but you know.
3: No, I'm i am just saying though, like <laughs> like there's showmanship to it. There's yes. There's this one account where uh, he's on top of this tall stage suspended above the crowd and he runs full speed as if he's gonna like crowd dive into the crowd and last last second he he pulls back and psychs them out and and just kind of hops up on the platform uh as as he's kind of street preaching down to the crowd he's screaming young man you are leaping headlong for the cliff and sin will take you over it you know just he's an attention grabber yes and hey and like it this i feel like the 1800s late 1800s
0: that's the error for that like that's what showmanship I'll be honest. If I saw a YouTube clip of some pastor basically running and almost jumping off the ledge and then screaming, "Young man, you're heading over a cliff!" Even today, I think that would catch our attention. So sure, it's definitely different.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, he took he took his preaching
0: all around the world. He he had
3: a big tour in England in the late 1800s. He'd preach for, I mean, huge crowds that would gather. I wish. I kind of wish we still had, like, yeah. traveling preachers that, like, I,
0: I'd, I'd go out and, and watch a, a pastor.
3: That's actually true. I never think about that. You'll see, through. like,
0: where band tours go and all right? this. You have this T-shirt. You never see, like, and so-and-so was here, here, and here in this city at that time. Man,
3: because there are, there are you know, pastors that will give lectures and stuff, but it's not the same. It's not It's not what we're seeing here on this level. Through 1889 and 1890, he took a trip to the Holy Land, which led to a series of 25 sermons that he would come back with and become pretty famous for, and it really captured the public's
0: imagination for for visiting the part of the world where Jesus walked. After he retired in 1894 due to that fire we talked about, uh, he took on around the world trip, then um, he preached, he evangelized, and then eventually he'd worked for a very short time at another church in Washington, DC. But those crowds he saw in Philadelphia and New York and England, they didn't really materialize in Washington DC. So in his final years, he kind of retired, just stuck with his writing. Uh, now, he did a lot of writing. He edited big and famous magazines and newspapers at the time. Uh, his own sermons were regularly published to over 3,000 different journals and groups. And the readership on these sermons are estimated, one estimate, this might be crazy, but one estimate was 25 million readers. Just gigantic numbers. Even by, I mean, imagine a preacher putting out 25 million downloads. That's an amazing uh, reach. But think about how many people were reading those sermons. And this was 130 years ago. It's harder to get a hold of that content. As he grew older, his popularity waned. Although well-read, his sermons didn't have that performance in them. Um, and taste and interests were kind of changing at the beginning of the 1900s. And like I said, he did see his own decline in popularity. And, and a little part of me wonders, you know, the, the marriage scandal might have been a little bit of that too. I don't know. Yeah,
3: in 1902, towards the end of his life, he was in Mexico after a doctor sent him there to recover from. Influenza. Once again, go. You, the, you, that was a practice in this era. If you were sick, send you to a hot climate to recover. We see this with a, a lot of the pictures we've
0: covered on our show. I, I really think doctors need to consider bringing that prescription back. You oh, know, yeah. you
3: say that, but all of the people that were sent to hot climates
0: <laughs> also died there. So it didn't
3: actually like work out for you a lot never of them. read like oh, and then they got better and returned to work. <laughs> it's kind of the uh, the end of the line for a lot of these people. Unfortunately, for him as well. He did not recover. A few weeks later, he would end up passing away from that influenza. His funeral was was quaint. It was quiet. It did attract a few big names. Thomas Chalmers was there. But uh, overall, it was a a relatively quiet and, and peaceful affair. The sermon that we are about to listen to starts with a simple verse about a spider in a palace, yet he manages to turn it into a fascinating display of God's power. It definitely gives you an understanding of why his sermons reach so many people.
1: Spider takes hold with her hand and is in king's palaces. Proverbs 30:28. We are all looking for special occasions. A sky full of stars shining in January calls out fewer remarks as the blazing of one meteor. A whole flock of robins gets less attention as one blundering bat darting into the window on a summer's eve. Things of ordinary sound and sight and occurrence fail to reach us. But no grasshopper ever springs up in our path. No moth ever dashes into the evening candle. No barnacle on a ship's hull. No burr on a chestnut. And even rind left on an artichoke could teach us this lesson if we were not so stupid. God in his Bible sets forth for our consideration the lily, and the snowflake, and the locust, and the storks' nest, and the deer's foot, and the aurora borealis, and the anthills. One of the sacred writers, sitting amidst the mountains, sees a deer skipping over the rocks. The deer has such a peculiarly shaped foot that it can go over the steepest places without falling. And as the prophet looks upon the marking of the hind's foot on the rocks and thinks of the divine care over him, he says, You may make my feet like the deer's hoof so that I may walk on high places. And another sacred writer sees the ostrich leaving its egg in the sand of the desert and without any waiting time it walks off. And the scripture says that is like some parents leaving their children without any wing of protection or care. In my inspired text today, it opens before us the gate of a palace, and we are inducted amid the pomp of the throne and the courtier, and while we are looking around upon the magnificence, inspiration points us to a spider plying its shuttle and weaving its net on the wall. It does not call us to regard the grand surrounding of the palace, but to a solemn and earnest consideration of the fact that the spider takes hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. It is not very certain what was the particular species of insect spoken of in the text, but I will proceed to learn from the exquisiteness of the divine mechanism. The king's chamberlain comes into the palace and looks around and sees the spider on the wall. And says, away with the intruder. And the servant of Solomon's palace comes with his broom and dashes down the insect saying, what a loathsome thing it is. But under microscopic inspection, I find it more wondrous of construction than the embroideries on the palace wall and the upholstery about the windows. All the machinery of the earth could not make anything so delicate and beautiful as the prehensile with that spider catches its prey, or as any of its eight eyes, we do not have to go so far up to see the power of God in the tapestry hanging around the windows of heaven, or in the horses and chariots of fire with which the dying day departs. We don't have to go look at the mountain swinging out its sword arm from under the mantle of darkness until it can strike with the cimeter of the lightning, I love better to study God in the shape of a fly's wing or in the formation of a fish's scale or in the snowy whiteness of a pond lily. I love to track his footsteps in the mountain mass and to hear his voice in the hum of the rye fields and discover the rustle of his robe of light in the south wind. Oh, this wonder of divine power that can build a home for God in an apple blossom and tune a bee's voice until it is fit for the eternal orchestra. That can say to a firefly, let there be light. A while holding an ocean, in the hollow of his hand, it goes forth to find heights and depths and lengths and breadth of omnipotence in a dewdrop, and dismounts from the chariot of midnight hurricane to cross over the suspension bridge of a spider's web. You may take your telescope and sweep it across the heavens in order to behold the glory of God. But I will take the leaf holding the spider and the spider's web and I will bring the microscope to my eye and while I gaze and look and study and when I am done, I will be in shock. Then I will kneel down in the grass and cry, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God, Almighty. Again, my text teaches me that insignificance is no excuse for inaction. The spider that Solomon saw on the wall might have said, I can't weave a web worthy of this great palace. What can I do amid all this gold and embroidery? I am not able to make anything fit for so grand a place, and so I will not work my spinning jenny. Not so, said the spider. The spider takes hold with her hands. Oh, what a lesson that is for you and me. You say, if only you had some great sermon to preach, or if only you had a great audience to talk to, or if only you had a great army to marshal, or if only you had a constitution to write, and if there was just some tremendous thing in the world for you to do then you would show us. Yes, you would show us. What if the Levite in the ancient temple had refused to snuff the candle because he could not be a high priest? What if the hummingbird should refuse to sing its song into the ear of the honeysuckle because it cannot, like the eagle, dash its wings into the sun? What if the raindrop should refuse to descend because it is not a Niagara fall? What if the spider of the text should refuse to move its shuttle because it cannot weave Solomon's robes away with such folly? If you are lazy with one talent, you would be lazy with ten talents. If Milo cannot lift the calf, he never will have strength to lift the ox. In the Lord's army, there are calls for promotion, but you cannot be a general until you have been a captain, a lieutenant, and a colonel. It is step by step. It is inch by inch. It is stroke by stroke that our Christian character is built. Therefore, be content to do what God commands you to do. God is not ashamed to do small things. He is not ashamed to be found chiseling a grand of sand, or helping a honeybee to construct its cell with mathematical accuracy, or flinging a shell in the surf, or shaping the bill of a finch. What God does, he does well. What you do, do well. Whether it is a great work or a small work, if ten talents employ all the ten, If five talents, employ all five, and if one talent, employ the one. If only the thousandth part of a talent employ that, you should be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. I tell you, if you are not faithful to God in a small sphere, you will be indolent and insignificant. In a large sphere. Again, my text teaches me that repulsiveness and loathsomeness will sometimes climb up into very elevated places. You would have tried to have killed the spider that Solomon saw. You would have said, This is no place for it. If that spider is determined to weave a web, let it do so. Down in the cellar of this palace or in some dark dungeon. Ah, the spider of the text could not be discouraged. It clambered on. It climbed up higher and higher and higher until after a while it reached the king's vision. And he said, the spider takes hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. And so it often is now with things that are loathsome and repulsive that get up into very elevated places. The church of Christ, for instance, is a palace. The king of heaven and earth lives in it. According to the Bible, her beams are of cedar and her rafters of fir, and her windows of a gate and the fountains of salvation dash a rain of light. It is a glorious place church of God is. And yet sometimes unseemingly and loathsome, things creep up into it. Evil speaking and rancor and slander and backbiting and abuse come crawling up on the walls of the church, spinning a web from arch to arch, and form the top of one communion tankard to the top of another communion tankard. Glorious palace in which there ought only to be light and love, and pardon, and grace. Yet there is a spider in the palace. Home ought to be a castle. It ought to be the residence of every royal. Kindness, love, peace, patience, and endurance, should it be to the princes residing there. But sometimes dissension crawls up into that home, and the jealous eye comes up. And the scene of peace and plenty becomes the scene of tensions and dissonance. You say, what is the matter with this home? I will tell you what's the matter with it. A spider is in the palace. A well-developed Christian character is a grand thing to look at. You see some man with great intellectual and spiritual proportions. You say, how remarkable that man must be. But you find amid all his splendor and skills that there are some prejudice, some whim or some evil habit that a great many people do not notice. But you have happened to notice, and it is gradually spoiling that man's character to you. It is gradually going to harm his entire reputation for you. Others may not see it, but you are anxious in regard to his welfare, and now you discover it. There it is, a dead fly in the ointment, or a spider in the palace. Again, my text teaches me that perseverance will mount into the king's palace. It must have seemed a long distance for that spider to climb into Solomon's splendid residence, but it started at the very foot of the wall and went up over the panels of Lebanon cedar higher and higher until it stood higher than the highest throne in all the nations, the throne of Solomon. And so God has decreed it that many of those who are down in the dust of sin and dishonor will gradually attain to the king's palace. We see it in worldly things. Who is that banker in Philadelphia? Why? Why? He used to be the boy that held the horses of Stephen Gerard while the millionaire went in to collect his dividends. Arkwright toils on up from the barber's shop until he gets into the palace of invention. Sextus V. toils on up from the office of Swinard until he gets into the palace of Rome. Fletcher toils on up from the most insignificant family position until he gets into the palace of Christian eloquence. Hogarth. Engraving pewter pots for a living toils on up until he reaches the palace of world-renowned art. And God has decided that, though you may be weak of arm and slow of tongue and be struck through with a great many mental and moral deficits, by his almighty grace you will yet arrive in the king's palace. And not the one spoken of in the text, not one of marble, not one adorned with pillars of alabaster and thrones of ivory and flagons of burnished gold, no, but a palace in which God is the king and the angels of heaven are the cupbearers. The spider crawling up the wall of Solomon's palace was not worth looking after or considering as compared with the fact that we, who are worms of the dust, may at last ascend into the palace of the king immortal. By the grace of God, may we all reach it. Oh, heaven is not a dull place. It is not worn out, mansions with faded curtains and outlandish chairs and cracked ware. No, it is as fresh and fair and beautiful as though it were completed, but yesterday. The kings of the earth will bring their honor and glory into it. The palace means splendid rooms. Now, I do not know where heaven is, and I do not know how it looks. But if our bodies are to be resurrected in the last day, I think heaven must have material splendor as well as a spiritual grandeur. Oh, what grandeur of apartments must there be if that divine hand which plunged the sea into blue and the foliage into green and set the sunset on fire will gather all the beautiful colors of the earth around his throne. And when that same arm which lifted the pillars of alpine rock and bent the arch of sky will raise before our soul the eternal palace, and we see that hand which hung with loops of fire the curtains of the morning will prepare the upholstery of our kingly residence. A palace also means splendor of associations. The poor man, the outcast, cannot get into the tuileries, Or Windsor Castle. The sentinel of the king or the queen stands there and cries halt as he tries to enter. But in that palace, we may all become residents and we will all be princes and kings. We may have been beggars. We may have been outcasts. We may have been wandering and lost as we all have been at one point. But there we will take our royal status. What companionship in heaven to walk side by side with John and James and Peter and Paul and Moses and Joshua and Caleb and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Micah and Zachariah and Wilberforce and Oliver Comwell and Philip Doddridge and Edward Payson and John Milton and and Elizabeth Fry, and Hannah Moore, and Charlotte Elizabeth, and all the other kings and queens of heaven. Oh, my soul, what a companionship. A palace means the splendor of a banquet. There will be no more common ware on that table. There will be no more unskilled musicians at that entertainment. There will be no scanty supply of fruit or beverage. There have been banquets spread that cost a million of dollars each. But who can tell the untold wealth of that banquet? I do not know whether John's description of it is literal or figurative. A great many wise people tell me it is figurative, but I say to them to prove it. I do not know, but it may be literal. I do not know, but there may be real fruits plucked from the tree of life. I do not know, but that Christ referred to the real juice of the grape when he said that we should drink new wine in our father's kingdom. But not the intoxicating stuff of this world's brewing. I do not say it is so, but I have as much right for thinking it is so as you have for thinking the other way. At any rate, it will be a glorious banquet. Hark the chariots rumbling in the distance. I really believe the guests are coming now. The gates swing open, the guests dismount, the palace is filling, and all the chalices flashing with pearl and amnest and carbuncle are lifted up to the lip of the myriad banqueters while standing in the robes of snowy white while they drink to the honor of our glorious king. Oh, you say, That is too grand a place for you and for me. No, it is not. If a spider, according to the text, could crawl up on the wall of Solomon's palace, will not our poor souls, through the blood of Christ, mount up from the depths of its sin and shame and finally reach the palace of the eternal king? Where sin abounded, grace will much more abound. And that whereas sin reign through death, even so may grace reign through righteousness to eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the far east, there is a bird called the Huma, about which is the beautiful superstition that upon whatever head the shadow of that bird rests. Upon that head, there will be a crown. Oh, you dove of the spirit floating above us. Let the shadow of your wing fall upon this congregation, that each at last in heaven may wear upon his head a crown, a crown, and hold in his right hand a star, a star.
0: This maybe wasn't even one of the big points in the sermon, but the thing I really thought about and it really stood with me was he talks about being faithful with one talent before growing in a God's position to a higher rank. You know, you got to start out in God's army as a private before you'll ever make it to a general and you have to move step by step. There's no cutting in line to get somewhere further. You can't just one day be the cashier in God's business, and then the next day you're the CEO. No, you have to walk through each step, proving your faithfulness with the talent God has given you. I think that's something we often don't really want to do, and I think a lot of us struggle with this desire to do more for the kingdom of God, but we're really struggling to be faithful in the smaller position that we are in right now. And I think God is waiting for us to show ourselves faithful right where we are, And then he will continue to grow us. And, you know, being compared to a spider in a palace, it's maybe not like the most pleasant comparison, but it is a good reminder that to us, we are very small in God's great kingdom. And let's just be faithful with the little stuff God has given us now and do well with what he has blessed us with.
3: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. You can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes at ReviveThoughts.com. Special thanks to Henry Knox for narrating today's episode. Henry Knox Jr. was born and raised in an inner city area called Oak Clift in Dallas, Texas. Although he was brought up in the church, he didn't come to a true repentance and saving faith until 2007. After being compelled into the faith and with a deep desire to share the gospel in the community from which he was raised, he founded a ministry in 2013 named Christ Infinite Vision. By God's providence, he currently serves as an elder at Ecclesia Church of Dallas, where their local church mission has been evangelizing neglected communities while providing God-centered teaching, discipleship, and education. Henry continues to strongly believe the eternal truth That salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. And the preaching of the gospel is the only message unto salvation. He's also the husband of his wife, Nicole, and the father of three children. Hey, if you're thinking of a way to help out the Revive Thoughts podcast, uh, you can join us on Patreon if you'd like to help out monetarily. You get a couple bonus features that way. But a simple way, a free way that everyone can be a part of that everyone can help with, is leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It takes Two minutes just to pop over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Leave a nice comment if you'd like. It really
0: helps the show a lot. Oh, Joe, I can smell this new book. It smells delightful. Nothing like a good new book verse. smell. It, is, it just smells so good. I you have four fantastic testimonies. And look, if you listen to Revive Thoughts, we know you love great testimonies of great men. And yes, we have done episodes on Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and John Bunyan. But I'm telling you, even I want to pre-read this book for you. I'm not going to do it so the pages say nice. But this is a book. You can get it now just by simply sharing this episode. We ask that you share this episode on Facebook, Facebook instagram twitter make sure you tag us and we will then look at your name into your name with a group of other names randomly generate a winner one of you who share it will be selected to get this book we will mail it to you all of this is on us this is our free gift to you And this also is a free gift from banner of truth they publish a lot of really amazing books if you're not following them on instagram twitter facebook we highly recommend you go do so right now they have wonderful awesome books and all these great men of god they do a very similar thing that we do they just do it through book form Um, we recommend you go check them out and we recommend if you want to win this book that you share this episode
3: yeah once again the book is titled in their own words and it it includes testimonies from all of these great people, Calvin Knox, Luther, and Bunyan. Troy and I are even going to customize the uh, the opening page with a, with a little custom note from us. So get out there and share uh, an episode of Revive Thoughts. Make sure we're tagged. This uh, book is given away next week. We're going to announce the winner next week. Yes. So you have one more week to do that. It started last week. has this two-week run. Um, so you have one more week from the time this episode airs to uh, get entered for that winning.
0: This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
2: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
3: On the In Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world,
2: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse,
3: how to not hate your in-laws.
2: Ways to save money for your next vacation.
3: And how to use the Enneagram in your relationships.
2: Join us, Daniel.
3: And Christina M,
2: As we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family.
3: For more information, go to imbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.